It's spring break week in the Miller household, which means the kids are home, there is no school, and it's practically impossible to find a quiet place to get work done. In other words, it's exactly the same as the past 52 weeks have been. So, let's escape to the backyard office shed and talk about biblical obscurities. This is The Backdrop. That's right, we're looking at chapters 15 to 17 of Matthew this week, which has some really interesting and confusing passages to pick apart. We surely won't have time to get to everything, but we're going to get started with chapter 15, where Jesus wins some arguments with the Pharisees and loses one with a Canaanite woman. First, the Pharisees, who accuse Jesus and his followers of disobeying the traditions of the elders by not washing their hands properly before they eat. Their objection is framed as it is against the tradition of the elders, for a reason, which is that this is not a requirement laid out anywhere in the Old Testament. The priests were supposed to wash, people were supposed to wash before participating in rituals and sacrifices at the temple, but normal people in their normal daily lives were not supposed to do anything of the sort. And this is actually a window into the Pharisaic worldview. To the Pharisees, the world was not as it should be. God's promises for the return from exile had not happened, which means the people must not have turned back to God with their whole hearts, which was the precondition, according to the prophets, for the return from exile to occur. And so far, by the way, Jesus would completely agree with them. But the Pharisees' response to that reality was different from the one Jesus presented. The Pharisees, among other things, looked back at the Old Testament and said, well, we must not be keeping the law right. We must need to be even better at it. So how could we be even better at keeping the law so that we will have fulfilled our side of the covenant and then God will fulfill God's side? Well, first, we will make sure that we don't break any of the commandments by being even more strict. No work on the Sabbath becomes not even getting anywhere close to work on the Sabbath, for example. But also, they reasoned, if the priests are the most holy people, and we know that since they're the ones who are in and around the temple and they can be in the presence of God there and all that, well then, maybe everyone should be as holy as the priests are. And if everyone is as holy as the priests, then surely we will be keeping the law the way that God wants. And so, washing becomes a tradition of the elders. And anyone who isn't washing like the priests, well, they are keeping us from getting in God's good graces. They're ruining it for all of us and keeping us in exile. This is why the Pharisees are upset with Jesus and his followers in this instance. And of course, Jesus's response to the Pharisees is that they have correctly identified the problem. The people haven't returned to God with their whole hearts, but they've completely botched the solution. The answer is not to keep all the laws, but better. The answer is to live out the principles those laws were always meant to point to. This is why Jesus is always quoting Micah. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You're reading the prophets wrong, Jesus says. They all say the same thing, which is to do justice and be merciful and love God and love your neighbor. Those are what it means to return to God with your whole heart. And those are what those laws were meant to help you to do. But it isn't the laws that are important. It's the principles those laws point to when read correctly. That's kind of the heart of the disagreement between Jesus and the Pharisees. Both see the other as leading the people astray and preventing the return from exile and the blessings of God's kingdom. It's important to note here, Jesus is not criticizing Judaism or religion or tradition. He is criticizing the particular ways of practicing Judaism 
and religion that the Pharisees represent. He is criticizing the more recent traditions that have been added on to the older traditions in the law and the prophets. Religion done right is supposed to be life-giving, Jesus is saying, and you have made it a burden instead. The Pharisees had a fair amount of influence with normal people in Jesus's day, especially in the more rural areas, which was most of the population back then, of course, in contrast to today where most of the people live in cities, which is why Jesus, who is also operating mainly in the rural areas of Galilee, he keeps running into the Pharisees. And it's also why the disciples are a little worried in verse 12 when they come to Jesus saying, you know, the Pharisees are pretty upset by what you're saying. Jesus, of course, doubles down in this passage. Jesus is really quite good at being rude throughout most of Matthew's gospel, kind of relentlessly so when you read it all through. It's a character trait that many seem to have missed through the years or downplayed. Whatever Jesus means by meekness and humility, it's certainly not being nice all the time. Jesus is kind and gentle and compassionate towards the oppressed, the children, the least, the marginalized. He is anything but towards the powerful and towards the oppressors. Which brings us to the one story of Jesus being anything other than nice and compassionate towards a woman. And what I just said is important as we look at this uncomfortable story of Jesus and a Canaanite woman. Jesus is consistently confrontational and rude towards the powerful and consistently gentle and compassionate towards the weak. Chapter 15 includes, right after his confrontation with the Pharisees, a confrontation with a Canaanite woman, one whom Jesus literally calls a little bitch. I think based on what is true elsewhere, that our default assumption here ought to be that this woman represents the powerful far more than the weak because of how Jesus interacts with her. In other words, we need to be careful not to import our own cultural assumptions into this interaction. Because if we did, we might see Jesus, a man representing a Judeo-Christian culture, which today is the center of power, insulting an indigenous woman, maybe the epitome of the marginalized. And that is an uncomfortable story to have to deal with. But it's not the story that Matthew is telling. It's not as easy to see in Matthew's version of the story. But if we go to the parallel story that Mark tells in his gospel, we find the woman being referred to as a Syrophoenician woman rather than a Canaanite, highlighting, Mark is, that she is a Greek woman living in the coastal cities of Tyre or Sidon, where the elite of that region lived at the time. At the end of Mark's story, after Jesus has cast out the demon in the daughter, her daughter is said to be lying on a bed rather than a mattress. And this is a clue that this is a rich family, rich enough to have beds and furniture. This woman is part of the rich coastal elite, basically, the ones empowered by Rome at the expense of the Jewish peasants outside the cities. Even more galling, she is a descendant of the Canaanite people who have been Israel's bitterest enemies throughout their history. Jesus, meanwhile, is a wandering, possibly homeless Jewish rabbi. The power dynamics are actually quite the opposite of what we might import without that context. Matthew's community, therefore, would have been far more shocked by verse 28, where Jesus praises her for her great faith, in contrast to the disciples who have consistently had little faith up to this point, than they would have been shocked by verse 26, where Jesus calls her a little bitch not worthy of the children's food. This is where Matthew is saying to his community, yes, even the Canaanites are included in this community, even them. 
But why is Jesus rude like this, even assuming that she represents the godless oppressors? Well, this has been argued about to no end by commentators and scholars, let me tell you, and there are a few options that consistently come up. First, there are those who say basically, yes, Jesus was being a jerk and had no intention of helping this woman and wanted to insult her, but her wit and wisdom corrects him and he sees the error of his ways. The challenge here is, if this were the case, why didn't he just do what his disciples wanted him to do and send her away at the beginning? Like, why prolong the conversation at all unless he had some other intention in beginning it? So I'm not so sure about that one, but it's possible. The second option is that Jesus is testing her. He knows that she has great faith and is giving her the opportunity to display it as a message to generations to come. This is then kind of tongue-in-cheek rudeness seeing whether this rich, powerful woman is willing to lower herself, become the least of these, no better than scavenger dogs waiting for scraps under the table, by showing that, yes, she is willing to do this, to give up her status, because she trusts that Israel's God and Israel's Messiah can be a source of life for her and her daughter, then that shows that she has passed the test and that she has this great faith. Perhaps. Third, and I kind of like this one as well, Some have pointed out that grammatically, given the lack of punctuation in the original Greek of these Gospels, Jesus' words could just as easily be questions as they are statements. So not, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel, statement, but rather, was I only sent to the lost sheep of Israel? Is it just to give the children's food to the dogs? And then the women's words show Jesus the inevitable implications of what he already knows and believes. Yes, his mission is to the lost sheep of Israel primarily, but the inevitable next step will be the extension of the offer of life in the kingdom of God to, yes, even the Canaanites, even the Greek oppressors, even them. This raises the unanswerable question of what exactly did fully human, fully divine Jesus know as he walked around? And when did he know it? Jesus has a human brain. He has given up the all-knowingness that was his as the second person of the Trinity. He's an actual human being. And he sometimes can do things like read thoughts. So he's not just an actual human. But then is it possible that he knew and was pursuing the heart of the mission God had given to him to proclaim the kingdom of God to the people of Israel as Israel's Messiah, And then only when confronted by the wisdom of this woman, did it even occur to him that the mission might be broader in his lifetime and not just after his death. We know from the Garden of Gethsemane and other instances that Jesus doesn't fully know what is possible and what is inevitable. He sometimes must have been in a similar place to us of not knowing 100% and needing to talk to and listen to God for direction. So might this be a time when God used the voice of an outsider to expand Jesus's own understanding? Again, it's kind of unanswerable, but I think there might be something there. And if that is the case, it's also possible that this woman's words lead to the radical action of the very next passage. Right after this is the feeding of the 4,000. We've already seen the feeding of the 5,000. And the disciples seem just as confused this time around, which does beg the question, are they really that dumb? That after Jesus already fed 5,000 plus women and children, that now they can't even conceive of him feeding 4,000 plus women and children? Well, some scholars, although not most, I have to admit, this is not the consensus by any means, 
They've pointed out that, and again, this is looking at Mark's gospel to kind of fill out our understanding of the context. This feeding happens in Gentile territory, not Jewish territory. It's possible, of course, that a bunch of Jews have found Jesus anyway and followed him into Gentile territory. But it's also possible that these people are Gentiles. This has the advantage of explaining the disciples' confusion. Wait, we're not eating with these people, are we? We we can't be eating with Gentiles. This would be a radical scraps from the table, which is the other advantage of this reading of the story. It makes a really tight connection with the story of the woman convincing Jesus that, yes, the scraps from the table can be given to the dogs. Some counter by saying that Matthew would have made a much bigger deal of this if Jesus was feeding and eating with several thousand Gentiles, although maybe he knew that that would have been far too shocking for his audience, and so he said it indirectly rather than directly. I think it's interesting stuff either way. Okay, now on to chapter 16. See, I told you there was a lot going on in these chapters. In this chapter, we get a passage that's been (laughs) argued over to no end because it's a core passage for the Catholic understanding of Peter's role as the first pope. It happens in Caesarea Philippi, which was named after the emperor Caesar, Caesarea. It had just recently been renamed to honor him, actually. And it was sort of a pagan religious center, including emperor worship, but also with a famous area devoted to the Greek god Pan. And this setting surrounded by pagan temples, is where Peter proclaims Jesus to be the Messiah, the son of the living God. One scholar I read noted that this has a close parallel with Hosea 1 verses 10 and 11, which say this, Yet the number of the people of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which can be neither measured nor numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall take possession of the land. So these verses from Hosea are about the great restoration of God's people when the Messiah would gather Israel back into one people and restore their fortunes. In Hosea, Israel is called the sons of the living God. Here, Peter declares Jesus to be the son of the living God. There isn't any other place where this particular phrase shows up, and it's probable, therefore, that Peter is referring back to Hosea's predictions about the kingdom of God coming. And if that is the case, it opens up the possibility that Peter understands a bit more, that he is identifying Jesus correctly as taking the place of Israel, standing in for and summing up Israel's role as the source of God's blessing to the world, a theology that Paul makes a lot of in his letters later on, but that's another story. Jesus praises Peter, gives him the name Peter, actually, which one scholar pointed out might be the first instance of Peter ever being used as a name, that he can't find any prior example of it. And then Jesus says that Peter is the rock that the church will be built upon, and that he will have the keys to the kingdom. This is the passage that Catholics use to build their theology of the Pope. And then Jesus says that the gates of Hades, which is better than hell as a translation, actually, it's referring to the land of the dead more than what we would picture when we think of hell. But the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. It's not completely clear who is attacking whom in this metaphor. Is the church attacking the land of the dead and bringing life there? Are the demons who reside in the land of the dead attacking the church? Is it just a metaphor and we shouldn't read too much into the literal words? Yes to all of them, probably. Um, But then binding and loosing 
are the tasks that Peter and then later the disciples are given. And binding and loosing usually referred at the time to proper interpretation of the Torah. And so what's most likely in view here is that the church will be the ones who bring the life of the kingdom of God to the world in opposition to the death that currently reigns, and that they will do it through, in the words of the Great Commission later on, teaching them to obey Jesus' words of life, of binding and loosing, and explaining the meaning of the word of God. And then Peter goes and messes up again immediately. (laughs) Right after this triumphant declaration, Peter shows that whatever insight he does have, he really doesn't get it fully, not yet, And Jesus calls him Satan. (laughs) One of the commentaries I read made the point that this goes to show how quickly true confession one moment can turn into hindering the work of the kingdom the next, something that we have surely seen happen in the church today. Jesus reacts the way he does against Peter here because Peter is the source of the very same temptation that Satan offered in chapter four, that maybe there was another way to accomplish the goals of the kingdom through power, not sacrifice. But Jesus rejects this temptation the same way he did the first. Stanley Hauerwas makes the important point that this is not a call to general self-sacrifice or self-denial. That's a path towards abuse. And these sorts of words have been used in abusive ways when it becomes just a general self-denial. Rather, Hauerwas says this is a Jesus-shaped sacrifice that matters. This is sacrifice for the sake of Jesus and the kingdom, not just sacrifice for its own sake. And I think that's an important distinction. And then after this passage, Peter's whiplash continues as he is one of the disciples who witness what is often called the transfiguration, where Jesus goes up on a mountaintop and a vision of Elijah and Moses appears and they talk to each other all while the disciples watch. Why? No one really knows. Peter certainly didn't. (laughs) Moses and Elijah could be representatives of the law and the prophets, the two halves of the Jewish scriptures. And this is a story about Jesus summing all of that up in himself. Um, They're also both prophets who had mountaintop experiences with God and who died in mysterious circumstances. It's possible the significance of all of this is to get to the part at the very end where the voice comes from heaven and echoes the voice from heaven at Jesus's baptism. But this time it's able to be heard by the disciples as well. So it's kind of expanding this message of who Jesus is. Uh, It's a very strange story. And I didn't really find that the scholars I read had much of interest to say about it or much that was very illuminating about it. And so we're going to move on to the final story that we're going to look at today. And this is the one where Peter is asked about the temple tax. And then Jesus sends Peter to go find a coin in a fish's mouth. Now, first, a little context here. The temple tax was a half shekel tax that each Jewish person was supposed to pay in order to support the operation of the temple. Some, like the Essenes, refused to pay it more than once in their lifetimes, but others thought they were supposed to pay it yearly. And while it wasn't compulsory, they didn't have to, it was kind of a marker of being a real faithful Jew for many of the people at the time. So that's the immediate context here. However, by the time Matthew's gospel is written, the temple has been destroyed by the Romans after the Jewish revolt, and the half-shekel tax had been absorbed by the Romans so that now it was a compulsory yearly tax paid to Rome. So this story would have had different resonances at the time it happened versus when Matthew is telling it. By the time that Matthew is telling it, this tax is representing Rome's sovereignty. 
It is Rome saying, you all revolted and now you are going to pay for it. And every time you pay, you will be reminded who is really in charge. One of the scholars I read made the point about the story that it could be read as an affirmation of Rome being in charge and the Jews meekly taking it, but that he thought it more likely that it's meant to be a subversion of Rome's message because Jesus doesn't pay the tax. God does. God provides. Fish in Matthew are consistently used as images of God's provision. In the feedings, when Jesus says, God is a good father who gives fish, not snakes. And here God provides again, even in the midst of Rome's claims to sovereignty. This might be why Matthew decided to keep this story, even though it's about an anachronistic thing at that point. The temple tax does not exist anymore. So why include a story about Jesus paying or not paying it? The early church could have used this story to remind themselves that while Rome likes to think it's in charge, it's actually God who reigns. And even in the midst of Roman oppression, God will continue to provide that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And we're going to close with that affirmation. Still true today. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. Thanks for joining me on the backdrop this episode. I hope there was a little food for thought for you, as there certainly was for me as I put this together. Until next time. Bye. Bye.